So, uh, if you'll turn to Acts chapter 9, we're going to continue on in our series in Acts. Um, And while you're turning there, I will um, explain where we're going today and kind of where we're putting in in Acts chapter 9 this way. That if Acts were a play today where we're going to put in, in Acts chapter 9 verse 31, the curtain would be going up on the third scene. You know, plays have scenes, right? So the first scene in Acts would have been Pentecost with the coming of the Holy Spirit and, and the, the miracles that Peter and John did on the steps of the temple, the preaching that Peter did. Thousands were saved. That's scene one. Scene two is the conversion of Saul. Beginning with the persecution of Stephen when he was murdered by the Jews that were opposing the message of the gospel, then Saul comes up on the screen, big, and he kind of takes all of the landscape for the next couple of chapters. And then Saul, who had his mind set on just destroying the church completely and entirely, uh, all of a sudden he gets derailed by a vision of Jesus Christ from heaven. And Saul, all of a sudden, gets drafted by the home team. And he begins to preach. And so, with scene two, then this curtain comes down. And now, the curtain comes back up again on scene three. Saul is no longer in center stage. He's um, off the scene. Peter, the apostle Peter, is back uh, in center stage. And only he's not in Jerusalem He's actually out uh, on a kind of a pastoral visit to a little town called Lydda, which is, oh, maybe 17, 18 miles out of Jerusalem, kind of a little backwater town where the gospel had gone through the ministry of, of Philip. And we see Peter now, center stage, going to this little town, not in Jerusalem, not with all the horns and whistles and not all the things that go around Jerusalem, just this little town. But the gospel had come to this town. And the emphasis that we're going to see today is on the effect, the effect of the gospel. A lot of what we've seen up until this point in scene one and scene two has to do with the the miracles that accompanied the coming of the Holy Spirit, the apostolic uh, miracles that happened, the preaching of the gospel. Thousands of people were saved in Jerusalem. The same thing pretty much happened in Samaria through the preaching of Philip where thousands of people were saved. And it has to do with the spread of the gospel. But today, in our passage, we're going to look about the effect of the gospel. What happened in the lives? And so I think that's a good question for us to ask every now and then. We're talking about the spread of the gospel. We talk about spreading the gospel. We talk about sharing the gospel. To come to a time when we say, well, okay, well, what difference does it make? What effect does it have in our lives in your life? What difference does it make about the gospel, about your understanding about yourself, your understanding of God, your understanding of who you are, your understanding of his plan for you? What difference does it make? And so today, in our passage, we're going to look at the difference the gospel makes, the effect of the gospel in people's lives. So let's look in Acts chapter 9, picking up in verse 31. This is where the curtain goes down in scene 2, and then the next verse is going to come back up. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace 
being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. Now, as Peter was traveling through all those regions, he came down to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden for eight years, for he was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make up your bed. And immediately he got up. And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him. Sharon is not a lady. It's, a, it's an area. It's a plain around Lydda. So all who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned, they turned to the Lord. Now in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated in Greek is Dorcas. This woman was abounding with deeds of kindness and charity, which she continually did. And it happened at that time that she fell sick and died. And when they had washed her body, they laid it in an upper room. Now since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, having heard that Peter was there, sent two men to him, imploring him, do not delay in coming to us. So Peter arose and went with them. When he arrived, they brought him into the upper room, and all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing all the tunics and garments that Dorcas used to make while she was with them. But Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed, and, turned, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up, and calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known all over Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed many days in Joppa with a tanner named Simon. The effect of the gospel. What does it change? How does it change? We see in verse 32 that Peter came down to the saints who were in Lydda. The gospel, somehow, Luke doesn't tell us how, whether it was a preaching mark or, or whether people that scattered out from the persecution of Jerusalem, how the gospel got to Lydda, but there were, there. They were, there were saints there. So the first thing we see about the effect of the gospel is there is a status change. People that were in darkness, people that were sinners, people without hope, had become saints. That's a status change. That's the effect of the gospel. The first effect of the gospel, the essential effect of the gospel, is there is a status change. Now, when I started thinking about using the word status, I thought, well, I'm not a Facebook guy, but I know that status changes on Facebook can be like trivial. I mean, you can go and change your own status. You can say, well, I was this and now I'm that. Status change. But this is a status change that's affected by God, where a person who was a sinner becomes a saint. You know, this is the second time it's used in the New Testament outside of the gospel, that word saint. But it's used from here on 60 times in the rest of the New Testament. Believing, when we're talking about the spread of the gospel, believing is what happened. It's what people did. They believed in the gospel. But saints is what they became. Now, if you want to start a good conversation 
a lively conversation, ask somebody what a saint is. Uh, ask them what it is that qualifies somebody to be a saint. You'll get all kinds of answers, but usually it's something like, well, you have to be really, 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 really good, right, to be a saint. Or ask someone how they become a saint. Well, this, the status change between sinners in rebellion to God and, and sainthood, this status change is the very essence of the gospel. And you know, world religions have a lot of different ways of answering that question. In Hinduism, although they don't call them saints, they're called sants, S-A-N-T-S, what happens is in order to attain to sainthood is that you have to have a higher state of consciousness, right? And you have to... Um, let's see, what was the other one? Oh, you have to have a, a, a higher state of consciousness and you have to renounce the world. Just renounce the world. I don't know what that means, but you renounce it. <laughs> and, and I found this interesting on the website too. It says in Hinduism that the other thing that makes a saint is, it says saints generally like to help people. Well, that's nice, <laughs> right? Okay, so that's Hinduism. Buddhism to become a saint or to have the, what they call a higher state of consciousness, you have to go through four stages of enlightenment to get to sainthood. And our Catholic friends put it this way. Sainthood occurs at the conclusion of a long process requiring extensive proof that the candidate for sainthood lived and died in such an exemplary and holy way that they are worthy to be recognized as a saint. Part of that worthiness is doing miracles or after you die, having miracles done in your name. I hope that's not what sainthood means. And it's not. Because the question that sainthood, this status change, really addresses is this. How can a, a sinful man or woman stand before a righteous and holy God? And the answer is this. We have to be counted as holy as he is. What did you say? I said we have to be counted as holy as God is. That's what a saint is. The term means holy ones. And the Bible doesn't know degrees of holiness. There is no curve of holiness. One is either completely holy or one is not. And the effect of the gospel, the effect of believing the gospel, is the status change where one becomes holy in God's sight. Listen to this. It's one of my favorite verses. It's Hebrews 10, 14, and it says this. For by one sacrifice, he, that is Jesus, has perfected for all time those who are being made holy. One sacrifice for all time, he has perfected those who are being made holy. He's perfected for all time through one sacrifice? How do you improve on perfect for all time? You can't. 
And you see that holiness then is something that Jesus gives to us. We are declared perfect in his sight based on his sacrifice for us and his holy life for us. It's something that we receive. It's not our merit. It's not our effort that attains holiness. It's what we get from Jesus, a status change. We're declared perfect by God himself. How holy? I want us to remember this. As holy as God himself. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, and this is an astounding verse. It says, He made him, that is God, made Jesus to become sin on our behalf so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The righteousness of God. In Jesus Christ. Beloved, you're sitting next to those of you that received the saint. Why? Look right there is Saint Dion. And up there is Saint Eric. You know? Saint Vivian. Saint John. Well, there's already a Saint John, right? <laughs> that is the status. That is the effect of the gospel. Let's move on. Every person that has trusted God and trusted in Jesus Christ receives a new status. That's big. The second is the effect of the gospel is turning. In verse 35, it says, And all who lived in Lydda and Sharon, that is that plain surrounding Lydda, saw him, that is Aeneas, after he was healed, and they turned to the Lord. I love that word, turned. I like it better than believe. I like it better than followed. I like the word turned because it means to change direction. You know, you can't see belief, really. But you can see turning. You can say, I believe, but if the road you're going down on, if you think that the destination is over here, you'll turn. If you believe that going straight ahead is going to take you off a cliff, you'll turn. And so I love that word. It doesn't say that they believe. It says that they turned. They did believe, but they turned because they believed. It's a radical change of direction. It's not just a course correction. Turning is proof of believing. You see, Jesus in his ministry, you see this in John chapter 2 and John chapter 6 and some other places, where, there, where John makes a point of saying that there were people who believed in Jesus, but they never turned. They never changed. They just kind of wanted added, to add Jesus to their program and go on with their happy life. There was no turning. And they weren't converted and they weren't saved. But Titus 2, verse 12, tells us something about the grace that we receive in salvation and what it does to us. Titus 2 says, the grace 
of God and salvation teaches us, teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. Teaches us to turn from worldly desires to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. That's a turning. Now, what did that look like? Well, to the Jews in Lydda, I suspect the Jews that, 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 that lived there that had been going on with their Jewish life, when they, when they believed and when they turned, their turning looked like this. They, they no longer revered Moses. They no longer relied on the temple sacrifices to present them to, Jesus, uh, to God, but they trusted in Jesus Christ. There was a sea change here. For those that were Greeks, they kind of dumped their polytheism of a gazillion different gods. For the, and, and all of Greek gods, by the way, were just kind of big people, right? Just kind of a little bit more powerful and so forth. But they dumped all that and turned to the one true God. It's a turning. The Bible calls that repentance. And some people think that repentance just means sorrow. But repentance is not when you cry. Repentance is when you change. Luther said that all of the Christian life is one of repentance. So I want to ask you that who have believed, have there, has there been a point of turning in your life, turning from sins and turning to Christ? If you've never experienced that point of turning, or if you don't sense that need through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, trying constantly wanting to turn you, then it's possible, if not likely, that you've never had saving faith in Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus said that there's two ways didn't he? There's a broad way and then there's a narrow way. And the thing about a broad way, if it's broad enough, is you don't have to turn to stay on it. Any direction you go, you're still on it. But the narrow way is the way of Jesus Christ and he bids us Come into the narrow gate. Take the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate, which is Jesus himself. And if we do, Jesus promises, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. So I want to ask today, if you'll believe. But I will simply say, if your faith is saving faith, you will turn. You will turn away from your sin and turn to the Lord. That's the effect of the gospel. The last is the evidence of the gospel. The evidence of the gospel. We see two really huge miracles here. One is raising of Aeneas from his paralytic state. The other is, is the raising of Dorcas even from the dead. And the, and the evidence of the gospel is life from the dead. Miracles in the Bible, give physical proof to spiritual truth. They give proof. 
Remember I said before you can't see belief, but you can see turning? In Matthew chapter 9, there was a paralytic in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, and Jesus told the man, your sins are forgiven. Well, the Jews took immediate objection to that. They said, what do you mean your sins are forgiven? You can't see that. What are you talking about? Jesus said, okay, arise and walk. You could see that. Miracles in the Bible give physical proof of spiritual truth. Jesus is regularly, regularly raising people from the dead. All of you who believe have had a spiritual resurrection from the dead. Listen to this. In Ephesians 2, the bad news, Paul says you were dead because of your trespasses and sins. And I looked up the word dead in the Greek, and it means dead. <laughs> but, it says in verse 5, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, made us alive. That's the effect of. That's the evidence of the gospel is dead people becoming alive. And, and we, 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 we sometimes, I think, if you're like me, you think about, oh, I wish the miracles were still around. Oh, I wish that we saw dead corpses rising and walking around. And, and maybe under certain circumstances that happens. I haven't seen that. But what I have seen and experienced in my own life is life coming out of death. People that were God-haters becoming God-worshippers. People that were out to get all they can, can all they get and spoil the rest. Turning to love Jesus. Raised to a new kind of life. I've seen that. I've participated in that. And Warren Wiersbe, he says, you know, that's the greatest miracle of all. That's greater than these other miracles in a number of ways, and he, he puts it like this. He says that the greatest miracle of all is the salvation of a lost sinner. Why? Because salvation costs the greatest price, the cross. Salvation produces the greatest result, eternal life. And it brings the greatest glory to God. Miracles are harbingers of the coming fullness of the kingdom of God. And we see two of them here. Freedom from the ravages of sin and healing in the case of Aeneas and, he, and eternal life, raising the dead. Now, uncharacteristically, Luke provides the names of these two people that experienced the miracle. Aeneas and Dorcas. And that is uncharacteristic of Luke. And so we're going to drill down a little bit on that because there, there's something representative of the gospel here that we don't want to miss in these two names. The name Aeneas means praiseworthy. And if 
And if you were to say the name Aeneas in Lydda or any place around the, the whole of, of, of the Roman Empire, it would bring up one thought immediately. And that is in the Enid that Virgil had written only 40 or 45 years earlier than that, the main hero of the whole thing, the, the, the guy that was bigger than life, the, the ultimate man, the Trojan soldier, the deliverer, I mean, the man was Aeneas. And there's a huge irony in this. Because here's Aeneas. He's laying on a pallet, powerless, Pathetic, helpless, Superman, laying in the gutter. The name just doesn't fit. It's like the, you've heard about the poster, right, of, of the missing dog. It says, lost dog has three legs, blind in one eye, missing right ear, tail broken, Recently castrated, answers to the name Lucky. <laughs> the name just doesn't fit. Here is Aeneas, the epitome of all that a man can be. Helpless. Pathetic. Powerless. You want to say, Aeneas, what happened to you? I think Aeneas represents men as created by God. Man is created by God. Beautiful, capable, strong, noble, wonderful, ruined by sin. Peter says to him, Aeneas, rise up. Arise. Two words, really one. Stand up. And he does. And the ravages of sin disappear in the name of Jesus. Peter commands him, arise. Dorcas is the same thing. Her, her, her name means gazelle. And, and I read a some kind of strung out. It might not even been, it was only one scholar that I read that said that the, that the idea of the gazelle comes from the big, beautiful eyes. Because her name means gazelle. Beautiful. And this graceful woman with beautiful works and her beautiful eyes are now closed forever in the ugly clutches of death. Her liveliness, her beauty stolen away. There's a grotesqueness, isn't there? A finality of being around the corpse of a loved one. It's over. And the weeping and the grief are in part dealing with the recognition of the finality and the tragedy of death. It can't be staved off. One of the saddest chapters in the Bible, if you start in there, it goes on for a while and it's like a drumbeat and it, and it and it goes on and on, and it talks about Adam, and he lived this many years, and he died, and then his son Seth, he lived this many years, and he died, and this guy lived, and then he died, and then he died, and then he died. 
It's the hard stop. Death is the heavyweight champion of the world, undefeated, till Jesus. And amidst the weeping and the grief of this scenario, Peter comes in, he says, Tabitha, arise. And in the name of Jesus, she who was dead was raised up. In a single word, Peter commands both Aeneas and Dorcas, arise. And that leads me to the expectation of the gospel. The effect of the gospel is that we have a different expectation because of the gospel. And it has to do with the word arise. I think arise is one of those words that if you don't underline it everywhere in your Bible, you should underline it some because it reminds us about what our hope is and what our expectation is. Arise. Jesus promised way back at the beginning of the the first part of his ministry, in John chapter 3, he was talking to the Jews about himself. They didn't get it because it was around the temple. And Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They thought he was talking about the temple that they were standing next to, but, but John tells us he was talking about the temple of his body. I will raise it up. That was the hope. That was the reality. But Jesus went on, right? And Jesus commanded life over death to Jairus' daughter when, they, when there was a, 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 a synagogue official that sent messengers because his daughter was sick and Jesus got detained because he was healing a, a lady with an issue of blood. And then they finally come and say, well, it's too late. The daughter died. And Jesus went. Remember? And he took her by the hand and he said, Talitha kum. Arise. Arise. The same thing happened with the widow of Nain somewhere. Actually, Jesus interrupted a funeral procession of a corpse that was already in a that was already prepared for burial. And he comes and he takes the young man's hand and he says, Young man, I say, arise. That's the expectation that we have. And also to Lazarus in the tomb, Jesus said to Lazarus, come out. That's our expectation. Death can take us down. Sin can trouble us. Sin can vex us. Sin can cause us grief and sorrow. But there is a hard stop to it. And the hard stop is arise. Jesus said, in John chapter 6, this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. That's our expectation. And in 1 Thessalonians 4, it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So shall we always be with the Lord. There's a shout. 
Doesn't say what the word is. Can I get, let you, uh, can I ask you what you think I think it is? Arise. That's it. Arise. Resurrection is the hope of the Christian, but it's also a warning for those who neglect or refuse the sacrifice of Jesus for their sins. In John 5, 28, Jesus said, don't marvel at this. An hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. All who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Not just the saints, but all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And they will come forth, those who did good to a resurrection of life and those who committed to the evil to a resurrection of judgment. And we need to remember here that the good that Jesus is talking about here is the good that he has done on our behalf and his sacrifice for our sins and his perfect life lived for us. But there's going to be a resurrection. According to the promise of Jesus you will be resurrected. Will it be a resurrection to eternal life? Or to a resurrection of judgment and eternal wrath? Now some people say, you know, when you die, you just die. And that's it. But the Bible says that God's judgment is real. It's eternal. And it's fierce. That's the judgment that Jesus took on the cross in the place of all and any who will receive his sacrifice. So for all the Aeneases in here, fallen into sin, ruined, wrecked, hopeless, Jesus says, arise. And for the Dorcases, who are spiritually dead in trespasses and sin, Jesus says, arise. May it be so. Now, the gospel guarantees Christ's presence with us. That's another effect of the gospel, is that Jesus is with us. He said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. But before he said that, he said one word, lo. <laughs> That's the way it's translated in the old translations, right? Lo, I am with you always. Not just I'm with you always, but lo, I'm with you always, which, which the word means look. It means watch this. It means don't lose sight of this. It means put this in your pipe and smoke it and remember it. <laughs> that I am with you always, even to the end of the age. To hang on to that truth like your life depends on it because it does. But how many of us really believe him? Or how many of us just, you know, just write this, his words off to some kind of figurative, symbolic meaning? How many of us believe that he is here with you, with us, in a way that's at least as real as what you see around you? Jesus said that's important for us to know. It's an effect of the gospel. Is it Jesus? When I see 
the apostles doing miracles and things like that. I, am, I don't know about you, but I immediately have a disassociation with that because I haven't raised anybody from the dead. And I don't know, maybe I don't have much faith, but I don't really expect to. Not like that. And so there's this, there's this, this distance thing. And, and Jesus did promise the apostles that they would have a, a, a special power that he was giving them for a special purpose to authenticate his message. But, but, but the thing that I do have that's the same as the apostles is I have Jesus' immediate presence with me all the time. And you do too. By the guarantee of his presence in us, we have his power, his strength, and his love to serve around us, those around us. His presence his power, he's got you. I remember, and I'll close with this, my, uh, in, in when I was, um, I was way back in the 70s, when we only had one superhero. <laughs> Who was it? Superman. Superman. Right, thank you, all you older people. <laughs> now there's a whole bunch of super, uh, I mean, of superheroes. I, I, I went on a website, and there's like 50 of them, right? So, you know, there's a, one that's called a Human Torch, Silver Surfer, <laughs> the professor. But this was the time there was only one. And one of my favorite stories is from the original Superman movie at the very beginning. Lois Lane is up on top of the building and she's getting ready to leave in a helicopter, right? It's at night. And uh, so the heli- she gets strapped in a helicopter, you know, and the helicopter takes off. Only one of the skids on the helicopter catches this, this, uh, this cable on top of the building, and the helicopter topples over, and it falls on its side, and the door that she's sitting next to swings open, and somehow the seatbelt lets loose, and she's just hanging there above, what is it, Metropolis? Yeah. Superman? Okay. So Metropolis, and you see the people in the cars down there, and they're all going, oh, like this. Well, Clark Kent, you know, he's a couple blocks away, you know, runs into his phone book and booth and whew, like that. He runs over the building just about the time that Lois Lane loses her grip on the seatbelt. And she starts falling. And then time goes slow motion as she falls towards the ground like that. And then, da 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 da, you know. Then Superman comes and catches her and begins to lift her on the way back up. and and his words are, relax, ma'am. I've got you. To which she replies, you've got me. Who's got you? That's a question. That as we practice the presence of Jesus Christ, people should be asking us, who's got you? You're serving me. You're loving me. You're living outside yourself. I don't get that. Who's got you? When you live and act like Jesus is right beside us and right with us, because he is, that question is going to come up a lot. And our answer is Jesus with us. Jesus in us. Jesus for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you 
that, uh, that, that uh, spreading the gospel is not just some kind of, some kind of chore or some kind of task that, 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 that's just supposed to go as far as wide as it can, but that it makes a difference. It makes an eternal difference. It makes a God-glorifying difference in the life of, of us and in our lives and the lives of people around us, Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you for these gospel nugget reminders in this story today. We just give you praise and glory now in Jesus' name. Amen.